Uhr. Like, I think it's catchy, but it's still not catchy enough to get Baby Shark out of my head, <laughs> which I feel like. Yes. Like, we went to see um, the live podcast of No Such Thing as a Fish, like, three months ago now. Yeah. When it was in Berlin, and I still just, it just constantly, like, comes in. I, luckily for me, Baby Shark is not a thing that's so common. I think I've never listened to the entire thing at once, so... I think I, I don't even know if I have, maybe if I have it only once, but it's just like every time somebody says, oh, baby. And then I think like, cause we, we have so many babies in our friend group right now. Like a lot of people gave birth recently. Yeah. Um, and then it's like, oh, there's a baby. And then I'm like, baby, <laughs> I'm going to get copyrighted as well. <laughs> dun, 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 this is the end of the podcast because <laughs> like a copyright lawyer took all our money. Um, yeah. What money? How have you been since the last time that we recorded? <laughs> We're recording back to back um, today. We had a really nice picnic. We had sun and as I yeah. said, aforementioned many, many babies, all at different developmental stages, which is quite cool because we played them off against each other and <laughs> tried to, to make the weakest slash the youngest baby feel bad about its inability to crawl um, or even roll over. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like it was very nice of us. One of the babies, and I'm not going to mention whose baby can only roll on one direction and not in the <laughs> other direction. So that's quite embarrassing for that baby. Yeah, it's a terrible And baby. especially for his father, I would say. <laughs> like, that's where the shame lies. <laughs> it was a super nice day, though, really. Yeah, it was yeah. really relaxing. Like, it's, it's something pleasant. that I would like to do way more often. Or I mean, I, c I just can't do that. I'm in the like, privileged position of having a garden and friends who like to come around to that garden. <laughs> um, so <laughs> For a very small fee. For <laughs> sure, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it is nice. I, I don't really realize how much I, I miss it. I mean, in Australia, it's such a thing. Like, everybody has a backyard. It's all suburbia, which yeah. has its own terrible <laughs> issues. But um, the garden is a, a big thing. Um, and yeah. like the barbecuing in the backyard, they say. Yeah, it, I mean, I, I usually um, only praise for Berlin. Um, but yeah, the, the lack of individual gardens or the lack of clean parks is, is a downer here. Like you can go to parks here, there's many parks and it's quite green in the city, which I love. But so often you sit down and you pretty much just sit in uh, bottle caps or cigarette butts or somebody just uh, emptied their like throwaway barbecue. I think you're spoiled. I think Berlin is pretty good for being a capital city and you really don't want that many individual gardens. Like you live a little way out of the city center, yeah. but like, yeah, this thing of everybody having their own gardens is horrible because then you need to have cars to go everywhere. Like, no, it's also a little not very space efficient and so on. It's just bad for the environment in every way and also... yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I've just been two days in Hamburg, and uh, they have this massive garden in the center of the town, Planten und Blumen, and I mean, Hamburg is so much richer than Berlin, and yeah, this garden and is closed at night. The problem is in Berlin, we do have that, but it's a Tiergarten, which is there, I guess, for historical reasons, and it's not like it's not the ideal like walking through. It doesn't go from A yeah. to B, yeah. but that's because Berlin was divided, right? So I think like if the city had like grown more organically instead of being like split and. Maybe yeah. it, we would have that, but I mean, we still have a like, like the tier garden is a huge garden in the middle of the city. We do have that, which and we but have yeah, so really much green space. There's no reason to to cross it, and it's it's too large, so you can't really <laughs> no on like if you walk on foot there, it's nice for a walk, but you don't do that to go from like one end of the tier garden to the other end. You would never do that on foot. Like it's way too too long I a know distance. I people who have done that. Yeah, I cross it north to south occasionally. Actually, like to go to um Hauptbahnhof near Hauptbahnhof, like from yeah. my house is kind of. 
Yeah. It's doable. I was just in love with with Hamburg's park. You there. just love Hamburg too much. No, to be honest, like I, You've gone off it. I fell a little bit out of love because Hamburg is um, full of large streets. I never realized that, but I, you mm. walk a little bit through uh, like a nice little street or through the park, and you come to this like massive cr uh, crossing of like two four lane uh, streets in in all directions. You wait forever for the light to turn green. So many cars going there. It's just. It's one of these German cities that's built for cars yeah, with a little bit of life in between mm. the squares that are squared off by massive streets. Um, yeah, Berlin, the fact that you can like wander and like hit a little small plot, like a just small like yeah. square with some grass, is really it's very nice. Yeah, well done, Berlin. Yeah. Should so, we talk about papers? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let's talk about papers. Oh. <laughs> This is the Plants and Pipettes podcast. Welcome. <laughs> I'm Tegan. That's Yoram. Welcome. <laughs> well, uh, welcome to you. <laughs> For uh, the people who just tuned in and say, like, who are, why, why, how? <laughs> we talk about plants and also about pipettes. So we're interested in plant molecular biology. Okay. We don't actually talk that often about pipettes. I should research a pipette paper for next week. <sighs> okay, let's go. the paper of the week. So I'm the one presenting my paper today and I'm talking about a paper called Pipettes and the use of pipettes in pipetting. Bye. <gasps> no, okay, so my paper is from Nature. <laughs> Sorry, I'm such a brat. Uh, I'm too tired. Nature Chemical Biology is where it's coming from. The first author is Evan Zhao and um, the last author, I'm assuming is a corresponding author, is Jared Tukta. And they're at Princeton, and their paper is called Light-Based Control of Metabolic Flux Through Assembly of Synthetic Organelles. Many buzzwords. Okay, yeah. let's go into it first. Um, I have a bit of a disclaimer to make, which is firstly that this is actually not a plant paper. Um, <laughs> is it a paper paper? <laughs> I, I, I'm fairly certain they use pipettes. Um, pipettes. I always say pipette, right? It's wrong. I don't like, know how to do English pipe. anymore. I've been here too long. I uh, mean, it is a small pipe. That's probably where the name comes from. Yeah, but I'm thinking like a smoke pipe. I'm thinking like a like a. Well, because it's got the the, the double letter, it should be pipette. No, it shouldn't. Pipette. I don't know. I please call in and tell us how we're wrong. <laughs> okay. Um. So is that a plant paper? The main experiments were done in um yeast. Um. But have no fear. Plants are actually involved in some way. Yes. And they could be involved even more in the future. Um, so this paper is about metabolic engineering, which Yoram is now going to explain to you. Um, that's whenever you try to engineer metabolites, you know, when you try to make like new pathways and stuff to create, to make certain compounds the metabolites in an organism like let's like i know it's like some people try to find new substrates new chemicals that bacteria can grow on for example and try to create new pathways that the bacteria can take this metabolite and get energy from it um this would be metabolic engineering yeah so basically just engineering or altering the metabolism of an organism and it can be to like make the organism itself better as Yoram explained it can also be to make a nice metabolic product that we want to take home with us um so for example um we know let's say like vanilla plant makes this really cool compound called vanillin which has tasty tasty vanilla flavor um and maybe you could put the enzymes which are used to make vanillin in a different organism and thus cheaply make vanilla yeah, and make a ton of vanillin and sell that as vanillin sugar. Is that vanilla sugar? Like the, the the cheaper version of it that has like the main flavor compound. Somebody told me there was a link with like the previous way they used to do that and cancer. 
And I'm not sure if that's true. That's why vanilla came to mind because we had the discussion at lunchtime that like the previous, whatever they used to, before they knew about like, before they had good ways of producing vanilla and, um, they were using some other thing, which I don't know if it was even vanilla or just like some substitute and it was maybe carcinogenic. Don't Google it now because you'll be distracted. But anyway, uh, <laughs> it's it's not important. Basically, it, it um, metabolic engineering almost always um, involves adding or taking out genes of um, an organism and manipulating things to make different metabolites, um, which are your end products. So I want to imagine a scenario where you have some metabolites, you have an organism, and it makes the metabolites, which is called uramine. Um, uramine? Uramine. I made that up. Don't uh, look so surprised. Your arm was just like, oh, it sounds. Oh, I went too loud. There. It sounds like me. And no, I made this up. So the, because I was, I was literally looking up the vanilla and didn't pay attention. Yeah, I told you you're not allowed to have the iPod while I'm talking. Uh, <laughs> yeah, okay, um, let's say we want to make your amine. Let's no, we're not making. We don't want to make your. You're not listening, your amine. Okay, let's. I'm focused now. Okay, so let's say you have an organism like yeast, and it already naturally makes your amine. But you want to make uramol. Yeah. Because uramol is a highly valuable compound, which has an important role in... Too slow. Not uh, paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Making people who don't pay attention freaking pay attention while you're speaking. Um, so let's say you make this uramol, but you can't just turn uramine into uramol. You have to go through an intermediate called uramone. So you might mm -hmm. have to put one enzyme called Tiganase 1 to make uramine into uramone, the intermediate. And then you have to put a second enzyme in called Tiganase 2, and that will change uramone into uramol. <laughs> yes? Yes. Already works. Well. I, I can see already how I'm paying more attention. <laughs> I just have to say your name a few times and then you pay attention. Yeah. <laughs> That's shallow. <laughs> Okay, so uramol is, is a valuable compound and you want to make, your, for example, your yeast maker by adding these two enzymes. But you have a few problems which can arise when you're trying to make even this very simple, like, two-enzyme, two-step pathway. Yeah. One of the problems can be that uramone, which, as you remember, is the intermediate and not the final product, might be toxic. Yeah. So if you have uramone appearing at any stage, the yeast is just going to kick up and die. Yeah. Problem number one. The second problem can be the fact that Almost all metabolic pathways are nonlinear. There's never just A makes B makes C. They're branching all over the place and they're yeah. f feeding back on each other. And there's a lot of chaos happening. There's not just like a straight street. So it could be that the original product that the yeast makes uramine doesn't just make uramone, but it can also make uramite, or <laughs> which tastes like Vegemite, yeah. as it turns out. <laughs> or maybe the, the middle product, the uramone, it can be transferred into the final uramol by tiganase 2 but there's also another enzyme that can come in from the yeast and make something completely different yeah or just break it down and use it for energy metabolism or like just let it whatever something yeah. and the problem with this is not only are these um branch pathways but generally these pathways are adaptive so if you put something into the organism and you start making a whole lot of uramol the the organism the yeast in this case might be like hell no i don't want me some uramol i don't want uramol in my my yeah. buckets my yeast buckets whatever they're called the vacuole i don't know where it's putting them <laughs> so it will deliberately upregulate this extra enzyme in the middle that's changing the middle product uramol into what do we say? Uramite. Yeah. So it makes more uramite because it doesn't want to make the uramol so this stuff becomes quite hard to control 
And this is part of the flux control that happens normally in metabolism to adapt to, to the general yeah. world around us, but can be really a pain in the butt when you're trying to do some engineering yes. and you're like, okay, ABC, it's all in there. We should get the final product. Why? Yeah. Your And then the plants or the yeast or whatever your engineering is just like, nah. Yeah, you just get trace amounts <laughs> and you know like the things are there and they're doing some job, but they are way below efficiency and you're just like, why? Where is this stuff going? Yeah, or like sometimes the plant even takes it a step further. So you make Yoramol and the plant's like, mm, I don't like Yoramol. I'm going to lock this up in like two keto, beto, yeah. blah, 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 Yoramol. Like you can't you can't see what you're looking for yeah. because it's like put it somewhere like even yeah. further away. Um, by the way, if there are chemists out there listening, do not tell me that you can't make Yoramol into Yoramol. I don't know the difference between a ketone and an aldehyde and an alcohol and all of these things. I learned it once for an exam when I was 17 and never again. So don't come at me with there's no possible way to make an own into an all with one enzyme i do not care <laughs> good there's an enzyme for everything would be my reply to that if somebody comes like that like, then, like we just an have enzyme, they'll be like well actually you can never go to an own with an all because you must have 15 enzymes or well, that's like the other way around you always go from all to an own there's one weird. enzyme that can do everything like <laughs> that can there's one enzyme for any task good. even an own to an all this is similar to my friend's theory of there's no such thing as buffers that are different. The only thing that matters in a buffer is pH and his similar conspiracy theory of DNA does not exist. <laughs> Which, okay. Um, but another problem is that comes to my mind is the enzymes might not work. Tegenase 1 and 2 might not work. Let's assume Tegenase 1 and 2 are working because Tegenase 1 and 2 are very reliable enzymes. They always work perfectly. Like just every, there's, nobody has ever complained about Tegenase being awesome. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. No, but let's just say, like, like even in the situation where they could can work in that situation, yeah, there's flux issues. Yeah. Um. So the way you can deal with this is basically through co-localization. So you can shove Tegenase one and Tegenase two close together and put the hormone in kind of like some sort of bundle to make sure that you can't have the poison from the middle. Um. The, yeah, the because it doesn't exist long enough to be uh, toxic. Yeah, so either it goes from Tegenase 1 to Tegenase 2 so quickly because they're close together that it never exists, the middle product, or you have everything encapsulated in some kind of shell um, so that that toxic product never gets to whatever it would normally be toxic with. It, yeah. It's itself kept with the enzymes. Um, and this kind of shell thing that I mentioned could be a cage or a membrane. So synthetic scaffolds have been made. There's also some like protein encapsulins, they're called some kind of um, yeah containers. <laughs> and also like, like natural organelles like mitochondria, peroxisomes. And then in this paper, they said other organelles, which I think is very offensive to chloroplasts. Like <laughs> if you're already mentioning a peroxisome, which does not even have a genome, how dare you put freaking plastids into the other organelle category? This is just like, I'm not okay with this. Whoever wrote this, please make a retraction and resubmit with chloroplasts. Oh, not even chloroplasts, plastids. I want plastids. I think it's also on the reviewers. Like they're, all of the reviewers are personally to blame for not re re rejecting the paper based on the omission of the plastic. Chloroplasts. And I know it's not a plan for a paper, guys. Um, so this putting this co-localization, this putting the enzymes and everything together can be really helpful to make, mean you don't have flux problems. Um, and also mean that you don't have this um, toxic byproduct, midproduct problems as well. Um, and people have done this before. So this is actually not a new idea. People have made all kinds of cages for enzymes and their metabolic products to keep them away and keep the rest of the organism 
Apparently, yeast in this case um, <laughs> is being done. Boring yeast. It's not new. <laughs> but what is new <laughs> in this paper is that the ability to switch it on and off. So mm-hmm. imagine you have a pathway which branches. So uramine makes uramone makes uramol. But imagine at the uramone, you can either make uramol or uramerk. And depending on which of the enzymes it's happening there, you can choose using a switch, a molecular switch, mm-hmm. if you get uramol or uramerk. Okay. Uramerk sounds terrible. So I would usually choose for uramol, but being, being able to turn things on and off. It's also good. Yeah. Okay. And this is the point where the, the point where the plants come in. So just like listen very hard here. Okay. The protein they used to work as this molecular switch is it- an Arabidopsis thaliana protein. <gasps> or a bit of a protein from Arabidopsis thaliana. So I, I would have known my guess would have been now something like a pyranoid from Clami or something nah. like that. Like one of these shell making. Nah. Oh, we had this like Dode da the the hackathon the twenty sided die that we talked about a couple of episodes ago. Yeah. Um, like it's not that either. Oh, I that's mean, what I would have used. As you remember very well from your it, paper when you did that, there's a lot of proteins involved there. Yeah. So this is quite a complex structure. So give give me the number of the research. I call them. I tell them. <laughs> oh God. Ah, oh, we're gonna get through <laughs> this episode. Um, <laughs> so the protein they used is um, Cry2. It's cryptochrome, which, um, as you already knows, is. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. It's I mean, like, Cry2 is actually something I've heard from time to time, but I have no idea what it is. You might be thinking is. of the other Cry2. <laughs> the Cry2 or Cry4 help? Uh, okay. Um. Sorry. <laughs> Cryptochromes are involved in blue light response um, mm-hmm. in plants, but they're also cryptochromes are kind of quite evolutionary conserved, and they have some quite cool functions in different organisms. So there's some ideas that they also might be involved in magnetic sensing in birds. Oh, yeah, very cool, huh? Um, so in plants, um, they're involved in cell to cell in cell elongation in response to blue lights. So this is kind of some shading response stuff. Also, some shifts um, in uh, like uh, seasonal changes, which can promote flowering changes, this kind of stuff. Anyway, um, their cool feature, as far as this paper goes, is that they oligomerize, which is yarn. Making uh, long chains from individual parts, and like the, the monomers, and they, like if you put them one after the other, you get an oligomere. Like commonly known, like things are like DNA, which like individual nucleotides being a monomer, and then you just put lots of them behind each other and get oligomers. So it just and means then, stuff grouping up together. Yeah, but and in this case, it's in this case it's like proteins that are individual proteins, and then when the lights change, like twenty of the same protein come together yeah. and form like a racking protein where they're all like kind of. Yeah. And an oligomer is just like a sh- like a shorter version of a polymer, and polymer is something people might know. Like long-chained molecules and oligomers are shorter than that. Now I'm really wondering about the etymology of oligo versus poly, because poly just means many. But I thought olig was I think like oligo the means big, several. Like an oligarch is like no, it's like it's like power. Uh, I think um, it comes from like oligo means several and poly means many. And we do call f- we do oligo call, means a few. Okay, we do call our primers oligos, right? Yeah. So fuse. Yeah. That so just sounds really stupid I, now. From, like, from what I remember from my biology classes was like anything shorter than 100 is an oligomer and every, anything above 100 individual monomers is a polymer. And that's why you have like also oligopeptides versus polypeptides. It's like an mm. oligopeptide is just like 100 a few. amino acids. and 100 amino... Okay. 
and at least there was i i had like in my biology class i'm just looking here if like the wikipedia ha no it doesn't have anything that stands out that i can quickly identify but it's like it's it's not a strict like limit like mm. anyway i think it's not important <laughs> it's just so like yeah the several bits coming together when you turn on the light several of the proteins probably less than 100 but several um come together when um stimulated by this blue light which is what the the protein is originally supposed to be responding to but part of the response involves this oligomerization um and i think you can see where this is going um they want that they can bring some enzymes together with blue nut light with the help of this thing that already does that. Mm -hmm. um, so instead of taking the whole of the cryptochrome 2 um, protein, they just took the part of the domain which kind of is re required mm -hmm. for the coming together. And they also did some other stuff where they um, mutated some of the, um, the residues, some of the amino acids in the domain um, and also added some extra stuff to the end terminal. And this just basically makes it better at coming together into these mm -hmm. oligomers. And these, I think, were already described in previous research. So this was kind of just making it come together better. And depending on this mutation, um, whether they had the mutation or not, they also got kind of um, different properties of the, the oligomers once they came together. Mm -hmm. So um, I think with the, the mutation, um, they got this really, like, solid dense block of all of these guys so it was like really like boom like rushing together and without it they got these kind of more liquid light droplets which like um, monomers were mm. kind of coming in and out at will very like free-flowing but anyway just to show you can play with different properties um, mm. and get these different um, types of droplets which is what I'm going to refer to them as now these things that are coming together um, they use the word organelles in the title because I think it's quite sexy compared to droplet but <laughs> droplet is what I'm saying. Plaster is just a droplet. <laughs> yeah. Um, so then they're now putting their um, genes into you. So this is this um, domain from the cry and they're um, trying to see if when they put this into the yeast in a plasmid, um, they can express these, these cry things and by turning the blue light on and off, they'll get this oligomerization. Mm -hmm. It didn't go super well to start with. So when they first put it in there, the problem is they put a certain amount of plasmid in. So this means that you have like an independent kind of circle of DNA um, and a whole lot of those. So they, yeah. they put like X number of these plasmids into into the, the yeast. Um, and basically it means they're not really controlling the level at which their, their gene is getting expressed. Um, because different amounts of plasmids will basically make different amount of transcripts, will make different amounts of the protein. And that's what they really found. Well, they looked at different yeast. Some of them had these oligomers, which never formed. There mm -hmm. just wasn't enough of the protein expressed. Some of them were nicely responding to light. They were like forming when the blue light was on and then going away when the blue light was off. And some of them were always formed. So they're like, okay, we have to optimize the system. We have to find a way to make sure that we have a really exact number of copy numbers um, so that we get the right expression of our oligomers. Um, so now they're putting the 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 gene that's going to express these proteins which make the oligomers and they're connecting this gene each each copy of this gene is connecting in connecting to a resistance to an antibiotic mm -hmm. and the antibiotic is called zeacin and the important thing about the resistance is that it's not enzymatic um, it has to detoxify the antibiotic one molecule by one molecule so okay. enzymes can be super promiscuous they can go and do something and they can go and do something else and so you can have one enzyme and it can like solve thousands of problems but this is like a one-to-one -one ratio so yeah. hzsn resistance thing it's you like have a single use tool like it gets used single up. use um because it basically has to lock up the, yeah. the antibiotics stop it from working something like this so 
they can then select their yeast on zeosin. And they can um, look under the microscope and see which has the right response for it. Sometimes oligomerized only under blue light, but not always oligomerized and then going away um, when there's no blue light. And they can see what concentration of zeosin that corresponds with. Mm -hmm. And then if they always select on this concentration, they keep that copy number. So they can kind of use this system to work out the, oh, yeah. the right, how many copies of um, the gene they need to get the right oligomerization um, properties, um, basically. Yeah. So once they'd actually set up the system, they wanted to try it with a real pathway. And here I'm going to fail massively. Um, they used the deoxyvalation pathway. Why not? I think that was well. <laughs> well <done>. yeah. um, <laughs> okay. So it's basically um, a pathway which is branched only once. So it's a very simple pathway. So you start with uh, an enzyme VIOE. Mm -hmm. And this makes kind of the middle product, um, which is called PTDV. Not important. We don't care about that. But PTDV, this is where the branching happens. Either it can be changed in something called PDV. Doesn't matter the name. This is a green product. Or it can be changed into a pink product. Mm -hmm. And going into the pink product requires a second enzyme called VIOC. Mm -hmm. And going into the green product is actually a non-enzymatic reaction. So first you have VOE making the, the mid product and then you either use an enzyme and make pink or you don't use an enzyme and make green. This is like a branch point of the enzyme. So out of the, the pathway. Yeah. So now of course they want to see if they can put the VOE and the VOC together um, with this oligomerization. And then when they turn the blue lights on, you should only get pink product or you should get an increase yeah. in the pink product over the green product. Yeah. That makes sense, yeah? Yeah, because they, they're localized in the same droplet. And that's it forces things through yeah. that and pathway instead of like the, the mid product getting lost and then finding its way into the green. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they basically chose this pathway, I think, because it's quite a simple pathway um, and it has this like non-enzymatic step. We can talk about that later. Um, but the products can be seen very easily. You can use a chromatogram. Um, and again, they optimize different constructs using this zeosin, this antibiotic system, and to find out the right ratios. But in the end, they got something which, which worked really nicely. So they got about a two-fold increase um, in the pink product when they had the blue light on compared to the dark. So they've now okay. got a system where you shine blue light and suddenly you get pink. And if you don't get the blue light, you get less pink and more of the green. So the, the balance cool. between the two, the two outcomes changes. Cool. So one thing you could criticize the system for is it's kind of cheating because the, the other pathway, which is competing, is non-enzymatic. Yeah. And these pathways tend to be like a bit slower and maybe like... And also have a reversible reaction often. Like the enzym enzymatic thing is often the, f the the way that they facilitate a reaction that usually can't happen on its own. And also then the reversible reaction is often less likely to happen on its own. But if you have a spontaneous reaction, you have this equilibrium between the two reaction partners and then it can react also back. Um, and so this that's why the spontaneous reaction is I do not know enough about biochemistry, so I'm going to say sure. Um, <laughs> so um, as it turns out, they also agreed. They said, okay, non-enzymatic is kind of cheating. But as luck would have it, you can make this VIOE and you can make the mid-product. And then you can go non-enzymatically into green or you can go enzymatically with VOE into pink or you can have another enzyme called VOD and you can make a completely different color, let's say purple. <laughs> I don't know what it was. I think it was blue, in fact. 
Yeah, it's kind of bluey purple. So I was right, but right both times. So <laughs> That's the best kind of right. <laughs> yeah. So actually, um, the middle product uses the enzyme VOMD to make a purple and a blue product, um, and VOC still makes the pink product as before. Mm-hmm. Um, so now we actually have a situation where we're competing two enzymes. Yeah. There's actually a third player in the race that that non-enzymatic reaction can still happen, but yep. we're now um, coupling the first enzyme VIO-E either with VIO-C to make pink or with VIO-D to make bluey purple um, and trying both of them. And they basically got what they wanted again. So um, depending on how they coupled, they could shift it to pink or to bluey purple depending okay. on which two became coupled. So obviously if the E and the C, which together make the pink, um, product are themselves coupled, then you're more likely to get the pink. But they couldn't. They, that's not happening in parallel, right? Like you either like they these are individual lines you, because they all coupled with the same cry domain, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So these so, are so sorry. You, ca- these you are can't different put constructs. all three in in the no, same no, no, plant no, no, no. and then no, no. This switch. would be a competing. This would yeah. be yeah, up against yeah, yeah. So, but still, it works with like between two two enzymes. Like it works in more than just one case. Yeah, so the example they showed in the diagram, in the figures, is when they're um, trying to push it towards the purple branch. So they're coupling the E and the D, which makes a bluey purple. Um, I think they said that it worked also in the other direction, but I, I honestly can't remember. But mm-hmm. in any case, they got, yeah. like, again, not, not quite double, but like, I don't know, let's say 70% more of their bluey purple products and a decrease in their pinky products. And what was interesting is even if you change like the ratio between the, the bluey purple and the pink, you actually don't affect the, the amount that becomes non-enzymatically, mm-hmm. um, which also kind of suggests that this non-enzymatic reaction has some different kinetics and, yeah. and somehow is controlled also in a different way because yeah, yeah there's, yeah, but not really um, relevant. One of the other arguments I think you could have, one of the other criticisms of the system, I think could be the fact that having the light on and having the light off, even though it's just a blue light, can also have larger impacts on the organism, which might anyway stimulate changes in metabolism. So maybe what they're seeing is something of like a byproduct. So this could be an argument where you say like, yeah, I mean, yeast, when it has blue light, it just always makes more of the pink product. So. But are these uh, endogenic uh, yeast proteins or are these um, like transgenic proteins that the yeast usually doesn't have? I think they're endogenous, but I, I, I'm sorry, I don't know. Okay. I think yeah. they're already in the yeast. And the other question I have, like they, they call this, um, they call this a, <laughs> I lost the word, a subcompartment, uh, an organelle. Mm. But it's not enclosed in anything, right? It's just no, like no. sort of like a mag- two magnets on each end, like one magnet on one enzyme and an opposite magnet on the other enzyme. And mm. these magnets can be triggered by blue light and they come together. Kind of like that. I mean, it's, it's the same as your previous paper a few weeks back where you said this. Um, they also called it an, an organelle and it was yeah. um, just this carbon concentrating mechanism, yeah. right? Um, so I think the definition of organelle doesn't imply necessarily a membrane. We just tend yeah. to use it in that way. So there's some... Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, I think an organelle is just like a, like a small organ, it's like a, a subcellular compartment. But I, in my opinion, if you don't have a genome, you're not an organelle, get out. <laughs> yeah. Go away, peroxisomes, nobody cares. No, I mean, yeah. Um, I want to see a lipid membrane. That's my, my go-to identifier. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the other things which could also discuss, so I mentioned there's this, this problem with the light effect. So one argument against that is that they have a second system, which I didn't talk about, which is called Pixel. 
And this is taking advantage of a cyanobacterial gene from Synechrocystis. Um, and these ones don't form these oligomers in the light. They form higher order complexes in the dark. Okay. And they actually dissociate in the blue light. So if you then like set up both of the systems, they can kind of control against each other to say, hey, the increase is not just because lights shine, because with the pixel system, you get also an increase in the opposite direction. Yeah. So yep. This is, and I mean, also cool that you can switch things on also in the darkness. This could be super useful for different plant growth and stuff like that. That um, is really cool. Yeah. So there's a few caveats which they point out in their own paper. Um, often when you're doing metabolic engineering, especially when you want to make a valuable metabolite, you want to make a huge amount of it. So you want to hugely overexpress the enzymes that are involved in making the pathway, especially if they are enzymes coming from a different organism. Yeah. With the system, you can't do that because if you hugely overexpress things, they always oligomerize all the time and you lose the on-off switch. Yeah. So that's one of the problems. Um, these, the guys they use, they have to naturally love to oligomerize. So yeah. there's a problem. For me, that kind of means, okay, that's a downside, but it could mean that it could be, have quite maybe some more interest for like, more basic biology when you're looking um, like at understanding why things are as opposed to like a, an obvious yeah. like commercial application. And also um, there's like ways around this, right? In metabolic engineering, there is this like amplifying sort of circuits where you can make like uh, with that that has like a lower expression level, you can make something that then triggers a larger expression level of something else further downstream. Which is kind of the next point similar somehow um, <laughs> <laughs> not at all totally but <laughs> uh, I just wanted you to shut up so I could talk no um, no it actually is I mean so they said that actually despite this they think that they almost got they got pretty close to what the theoretical improvement you can get by clustering just two enzymes together is Mm -hmm. But when you start doing higher orders of enzymes, the improvement is massive. So mm. like, say you're losing like 50% at each step. Like if you put now three together, you now like yeah. aren't doing half by half by half. You're now doing 0.9 by 0.9, point by 0.9, let's say, um, which is a huge difference compared yeah. to point. So yeah. when you have um, just three enzymes, I think you have like this 100 fold Mm -hmm. change you can get just by clustering them as opposed to yeah. not by not having this this loss that comes out each time in the system or this like kind of um thing so basically the longer the pathway is the more this system would be useful because you would get even like the 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 lack of the loss of inefficient wait the lack of inefficiency builds up over yeah. each cycle um is yeah. there do you know how big this domain is that they have to fuse to the protein Yes, that, that could be the other downside. I could see that you have sometimes you have complicated enzymes doing a specific conversion of one metabolite to the other, and they might be sensitive to alterations like fusing something to their butt. And so I have to say, I'm looking at their um, their vector maps, and they're definitely not done to scale because they're all the same size. Um, it's definitely. A problem, though, because they mentioned that one of their constructs didn't work if mm -hmm. they put the um, the clustering, this cry to clustering thing on the C terminus, it didn't work. But then when they put it on the N terminus, okay. it did work. So there's definitely those things have to be taken into consideration. Yeah, um, yeah I guess it's not huge, but this is obviously still a problem. Cool. Yeah. 
Cool. Yeah, I that, think that's it. That's yeah, the that's point. A, that's it's another, a cool paper, huh? Yeah, it's a really cool paper. I'm always amazed with stuff. I mean, I come from a plant world. I shouldn't be that amazed about it. But when, when you have a physical trigger like like light that you can use for like on-off switches of production things. I mean, it, in photosynthesis, it happens all the time. Like mm. light comes up in the morning, the plant reacts to it, and there's lots of downstream stuff happening. But I know there's like this whole field of optogenetics where you have also like transcription factors and so on that are light responsive. Mm. And where you can then with like even wavelength specific, like with lasers, induce a certain trans transcription factor and so on i'm always amazed by this because yeah i i think it's a crazy crazy tool that you have and you just like you turn on the light and you literally turn on like a transcription or a a gene product and then also then a a metabolite in this case even on a protein level Mm. really cool yeah and i should give a shout out somebody at my work actually presented this in the journal club um which we have every every second week. Um, otherwise, I probably wouldn't have seen it because it's in Nature Chemical Biology, which I, I don't usually honestly read yeah. such wide. But very important to read things outside your field. <laughs> yeah. Cool. My favorite plant. And this week, it's my turn. And because I'm also very lazy, I sent our best reporter from the team, like the very best person that we have here at Plants and Pipettes. Um, a child. I, I sent him uh, out in the world to find me a favorite plant. And this is his story. Dun, dun. <laughs> hey, Tegan. Hey, Joram. This is Joram from the Botanical oh, Garden no. in Hamburg. And uh, my favorite plant this week that I brought to you is what I'm standing right in front of. It's the Aristolochia arborea, um, which is also called the tree Aristolochia. And this plant itself, it looks like a tree. Like I'm standing right in front of it. It has like these little knots on on the stem. Um, It has like fairly unexciting leaves, like large uh, oval-shaped leaves. but the exciting thing about this plant is that it um, has a very tricky way of attracting pollinators. It um, makes little flowers and it makes these flowers not at the at the top of the plant where the leaves are, where you usually would expect a flower. It makes them at the base of the stem. And these flowers, they mimic um, fungi. They look like a specific type of fungus. Um, they're like red with a, a white base. And um, with these flowers, they attract a specific type of gnat, uh, a fungus gnat. And these gnats, they usually, like these little flies, they usually put their uh, lay their eggs in these fungi. Um, and they try to do that in this flower. And um, then they get tricked to go into the flower and out on the other end. And um, thereby they pollinate the flowers and take the pollen with them to the next flower. And the mean thing is that these flowers then they uh, wilt and they drop they drop um, the flowers off and so also the eggs that were laid there of the gnats they uh, can't grow and the, the, yeah it's it's a loose loose situation for the gnat um, it's just used as a carrier for the pollen and it can't really it can't propagate as uh, as it likes to do um, so yeah that's the the favorite plant for for this week that i want to present here and um, with that uh, it's back to you back to the studio 
Yes, thank you, Yoram, <laughs> for this amazing field report. <laughs> no, I oh just like God. as I said, I went to 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 Hamburg, and they have a very nice like they have this open garden, and it has a a little um, greenhouse uh, with like four different sections. And I went there, and I just uh, yeah, I wanted to pick a favorite plant there, and I had to whisper like that because I wasn't alone there, and it was a very narrow thing, so people would pass by behind me constantly looking like- at stuff, and so I. <laughs> um, yeah. This is like the 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 moment of the podcast where we just like get so full of ourselves that I'm like naming metabolites and enzymes after us and you're like calling yourself the best reporter of the po- this is it's an embarrassing place for plants and plants for pets to be I would say. <laughs> yeah. But, um, uh, but yeah, cool. So- I want to see a photo. Um, yeah, I can show you in a minute. So just uh, because I I sort of went over it briefly, it's called Aristolochia arborea. Um uh, this is one of the few cases where the German Wikipedia article is so much more detailed than the English one. Where the English one is just like, yeah, it's a plant, and um, in German it has like all the details also about the flowers, and um, they look like like this, pretty nasty. No, I can't see. Ah. I mean, it's it's kind of fungusy, I guess. Yeah, I guess it must be a weird mushroom type thing that that grows there in the. I mean, the nuts seem a bit stupid. Huh? Yeah. Um. It's like natural selection for the gnats, right? I mean, this must be a, an arms race of the, the Yeah, the I, gnats I mean, usually when you have pollinators, you have this sort of trait going on, right? Yeah. The plant gives them some nectar and the plant invests some energy to attract them. And then these uh, pollinators come, they get some, some juice from it, and then they move on and take the pollen the with them. Um, but this, yeah, this is, the, the gnats don't get anything out of this. They're just tricked into this plant. Mm. Um, they think they're propagating their own uh, species, but they're not, they're just carriers of pollen for, for this plant. Um, and I also like the, the thing that um, they, they have these light, tr- uh, these translucent cells at the end of these flowers that trick the gnats to go in there so there's like sort of a light at the end of the tunnel uh-huh. and like a, like yeah like a moth is drawn to to a light these these nets are like drawn at the end of this tunnel they think ah there's the exit and then in the end there's actually um i think the stamen of the plant where the where the pollen sits so they i mean that's also like i was just saying it doesn't look much like it but like I can't see these magical lights. Like, I mean, to me, it might not look like it, but it might have all of these different ways of mimicking that it looks almost exactly like the the mushroom, like yeah. UV stuff or yeah. shiny stuff. Cool. Yeah. Um, and it's uh, mostly found in Central America. Um, and also in Hamburg. And also in Hamburg uh, there. Yeah, it's a very nice uh, little botanical garden. Um Germany does good botanical, like the universities, like they all seem yeah. to have a quite a small, like a, a small associated botanical garden, and they're really good. And it's in the center of the city. Um, the entrance is f- uh, for free. You just runs on a donation-based system. And yeah, I can if you have the chance to go to Hamburg, just check this out. They have a few cool things. Um, I mean, they have lots of uh, very like common plants you see in in these greenhouses. But it's cool to see like uh, cocoa plants and mm-hmm. and coffee and tea and um, I, um, uh, what was it? Uh, like some some exotic fruits that I now forgot the name. Which ones? I think maracuya was something that we saw, and so and so. Just for that, it's it's exciting. But also they have like a little series about like pollinators and weird things going on there. So have a look there. Tegan. Yeah. Diversity in plant science. Yeah. So we had the idea a couple of weeks ago to introduce each episode a non-white male scientist, just so that we all become aware that in the history of science, it hasn't always been white men. 
Um, today I'm choosing a woman. Her name is Mary Emily Holmes, um, and she's basically famous because she was the first woman to be elected a fellow at the American Geological Society, the Geological Society of America. Um, but she was also a botanist, so this was one of her other hobbies. Um, so she was born in the 18, 1850, mm-hmm. quite some time ago. Um, she grew up being quite intelligent. Um, she kind of listened in on her brother's um, lessons and got some education to start with that way. But I think um, the best fact is that at the age of five, she started her first herbarium, which <laughs> sounds suspiciously similar to my boss. I think he also <laughs> had like a collection of plants when he was young. Yeah. Um, and she was super like, I think collecting things was really her passion in life. So she was collecting um like plants, but then also tamed animals like squirrels, chipmunks, raccoons, gophers, foxes, woodchucks, an eagle, um, owls, birds. Um, there was nothing on cats there. I assume it wasn't compatible with the eagles and the, <laughs> the squirrels, but... And I imagine like she tamed a wild eagle out there, not just like an injured animal it was, that... It was a bald eagle. This is like... Yeah. <laughs> this is like the... Just went out there and was like, come here, come here, come here. Yeah. I had like something to... <laughs> Okay. Okay. Um, so then at the age of 14, she actually went to like a seminary, so a school for women. Um, and just to put that into context, when she was 15, one year later was when slavery officially ended in the US. So that's 1865. We can discuss whether it's ended or whatever. <laughs> officially ended when she was 15. Um, and then after she graduated from the female seminary, she actually um, went back there and taught botany and chemistry. Um, mm. So... Shout out to plants and the plant science. Um, and it seems like in those days there was quite a lot of um, variation in like having like degrees. Like, I mean, teaching botan- botany and chemistry and she was also a geologist seems like quite a broad scope to me. But yeah, yeah maybe in the day that was the but thing. But at the same time, many of these disciplines were not as specialized as they are today. That's also maybe true. And, and had an overlap. So like you could study the plants growing in certain rock formations and the compounds that they make. Mm. So so at one point, um, like her, her school university thing started handing out like some sort of bachelor, like a degree. And she was like, hey, I'm actually teaching this stuff. I should get the degree. And all of the men were like, rah, 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 I don't know, a woman. Ha, ha, blah, blah. I, I'm paraphrasing here. Um, so she had to actually sit some exams before they would let her have um, the degree. But from there, she was able to go to university. She got a master's in lit- some sort of literary something at the University of Michigan. And then um, she became the first u- woman to earn a doctorate in the earth science the earth science field from um, that university. Mm. So earth sciences was very, very male dominated compared to like, I think botany and there's some other things which are considered more female, right? Like um, teaching, obviously. Um, So again, I'm a bit confused because her field of study for her PhD was geology and paleontology. Uh And her subject for her PhD was the morphology of corals. So I'm not sure if at the time they thought that corals were rocks Mm. or if... Coral used to be a subsection of earth science for other re- I, I, This was a bit confusing to me. Um, but as I said, like her, her main passion, as far as I could tell, was collecting. So she was like collecting geology stuff, fossils, minerals, but also plants. And apparently she had a collection of like 2,000 shells. And she was also hella into cataloging the things that she was um, collecting. So I'm imagining she had whatever the, the 1800 version of an Excel table was, like <laughs> a small book of stuff. <laughs> Um, so, as I said, she was the first woman to get into this like prestigious geological society of America, but actually her professional career only lasted about seven years. So, okay. um, maybe because she was one of the first in the field, it was just like not pleasant. Um, 
So she didn't really have a career then in geology, but she actually switched to education, which is also why I thought she was like worth mentioning at this stage. Um, she was really pro teaching geology to young people, but she then switched her um, focus onto getting education for the, the recently freedmen, so mm -hmm. the people who were former slaves um, in the country. Um, so she co-founded a seminary for young black women um, that became like the, the Mary Holmes College. So not really named after her, named after her mother, apparently, but they have the same name. So it's kind of, she named it after herself, like whatever. Um, so this was again, focusing on getting um, education for women and for the black people. So it's like a minority, double minority. I'm not sure, like, I think the intentions are pure. I think um, it says in the Wikipedia article that they were focused on three areas which are literary music and industrial with the idea of kind of teaching like i mean there's some like homemaking skills going on there yeah. with like teaching i mean and, and also like very churchy stuff happening in there yeah. but i think that's what you had at the time i don't think she was doing anything bad i think she was doing good stuff but you know what call up and shout at us if i, I am wrong um and apart from that, yeah, she kind of had this interesting legacy. The The college actually stayed open for quite some time. It only closed a few years ago, but she died very young when she was just 55. So, oh, okay. Yeah. And the only cool. thing I, when I was looking at her, I remember that, do you know this, this um, English tongue twister, she sells seashells by the seashore? Yeah. I remember that being about somebody called Mary. And then they were talking about how this woman had like thousands of seashells. I was like, she's the one, she's the Mary. <laughs> It's not her. It's a different Mary. It's Mary Anning, who was like really into shells. So maybe I'll talk about Mary Anning next time. <laughs> but this one is Mary Emily Holmes. Um, yeah. So the first woman in the Geological Society of America. Thank you for bringing her. Ooh. Bring us some fun, Yoram. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> I will <laughs> eventually. Um, no, the first thing I wrote is an article I, I read on, on Nature, um, where it, uh, they present a study that was done on self-citation, mm -hmm. um, which is a practice done in in research that's very controversial because. Self-citation is when you write a paper and you cite your own work in that paper. And there are good reasons to do that because like often... Usually your, the research you're currently publishing is building off your previous research that yes. you previously published. So yeah. it's part of the same story. Yeah, and so there's a good reason to, to mention that and reference that. And even like leaving that out is like borderline wrong. To yeah, it doesn't make sense often. Yeah. But... <laughs> The other um, side of the coin. <laughs> but the other side of the coin is that a lot of the metrics that we use to qualify research is based on citation. Mm -hmm. There's like the citation count, there's the impact factor that's also linked to citations. The age index for individual authors. The age index, um, a lot of the funding um, like in, in, in many countries is based on the citations. Um, so if you want to apply for money, it's important to get cited a lot because that means you're very important. Um, and often it's just like the the it's just counted how often they cite in other other papers without any additional metadata. Mm. But now people looked at um, in a in a large data set in a large library of um, the the amount of self citation, and um, the first thing that uh, struck me here in this little article is that who do you think uh, cites themselves more? Like as a nationality, as a race, or what? What are we talking? As a gender. Ah. <laughs> 
It's men. Yes. It's men. Men cite themselves more, about 56% more than women. Uh, <laughs> they really are the fairer sex men. Yes. They are the fairer sex. Um, and then they, they try to like... They tried to to uh, relate that, and I think they made it a little bit worse. And they said, like, yeah, it's just that they have uh, more important work to cite. <laughs> like <laughs> it's they, true. They just are objectively better. They've been in in research for longer and have higher positions, and have therefore like done have like a larger pool to cite from, mm. and therefore they cite themselves more. Which Th is there just, is some argument in that because yeah. I mean, given given that all the top positions, not all, but many of the top positions are held by men, they're the ones who have the longer research career, and as you build yeah. up, of course, you cite yourself more that that does have yeah. some merit yeah it's a different issue of sexism <laughs> in our field but it's not the same one yeah. it's sexism and um the last video here they they go into um a big length in um of like how how they they set this up it's an inter uh, interesting read and what what to take from this um but uh, there's the person that cited themselves the most do you want to guess what percentage of the total citations that they have is coming from their 100, own? 100%. No, it's, uh, it's close. It's 94% yeah. of their... It's um, a, um, a computer scientist um, uh, from a privately run institute. He's called uh, Vaidyanathan. And um, yeah, 94% uh, of his citations come from himself. Maybe he's working in a really small niche field, though, and nobody else is doing... Um, like, if he's citing himself and 20 other people... Yeah, I I try to see if they gave the absolute number of citations that he have had, but um, uh, it's not that he's citing himself ninety four percent of the time. It's just that nobody else nobody is else cites citing him. him. Yeah, which is very sad. <laughs> it could also be that. Um, uh, but he is uh, no, he's actually one of the high, most highly cited uh, people in India um, because he was awarded like prize like award money for being one of the most cited people in India. But so not for that paper? Not for this specific paper, but for like his total cit stuff. citation okay. amount that mm -hmm. he has, uh, which 95% of them are his own. And he got a reward Wait. for being one of the most successful researchers for having a lot of citations, and most of them came from himself. So it's not that it's just a small amount number of citations or that nobody else like cares about his uh, his his stuff. Um He's just... Uh, he, he's pumping it out. He's pumping it out. But he out. must be making a lot of papers then to be... Yeah, and it's also like... His, uh, they also, what to be fair, they also included co-authors. So whenever like people are co-authoring and like sort of research groups, uh, that I they're mean, all like citing each other in a circle, but um, then maybe that's he all does, counted. Maybe he does something niche where like only he knows how to like... I don't know how computer science works. Press that button on the computer. Um, yeah. And therefore everybody... He collaborates with a lot of people. Yeah. Um, he he defended him uh, himself once on Quora online, um, and just says like the next work cannot be carried out without referring to previous work, and that self-citing wasn't done with the intention of misleading others. So like he's pointed out here, but he's not actually like in this article he's not shamed for that, and also I don't want to shame him, but it just brings the attention to like how poor of a metric uh, anything that's just based on pure citation count is. Yeah, but there's not really a better solution because if they knocked out all of the times that somebody who did work like you cited you, yeah. like in very small fields, like I know my, my previous field was PPR proteins and there's quite a lot of overlap. There's like, I yeah. don't know, five groups who are majorly working on this in the world and then yeah. they're always collaborating. Yeah, but maybe there's a way when you assess like who gets funding or so on that you have additional stuff on top of like citation count. You use that for some sort of ranking, but you also have like... 
like reviewers looking into it and so on like there's some like uh, some gender yeah for example gender age if the country good, that race. you're currently in is the one that you were born in by some luck <laughs> like preferably a european country <laughs> not australia or <laughs> i just tried to try to find it again i think it was um uh indonesia um that said that they wanted to change the policy uh of how they they um, give out money um uh but what was heavily based on citation count before uh and now they want to like make it more complex the way they decide who gets funding mm-hmm. um but according to some researchers in that country they said that didn't happen yet um although it was announced for for a while now it's just to me it's an interesting topic because there's to me there's no black and white there like it's absolutely valuable mm-hmm. to to do self citations but at the same time you sometimes have groups of scientists that do cite each other a lot to boost each other because it's like for all of them it's a gain um and that then helps them to play the system in a way mm. um so it's something that, that can be problematic but overall and we've definitely all have heard of that in reviewers so like um generally the idea in um in my field at least it's single blind so the reviewers know who i am but i don't know who they are and then it's not uncommon or at least it's it's anecdotally not uncommon that you'll get reviewer number two saying, what about this reference? What about this reference? What about this reference? And then you notice that all of those references they suggest you add to your manuscript happens to have the same author. And then you have a fairly good guess of who reviewer two is or who is close friends, at least with reviewer two. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. um, I have something cool, which I think you can see it. Unfortunately, it's um, originally published in the Journal of the Royal Society, the Royal Society Publishing. General of the Royal Society. Um, so it's closed access, but I saw um, the video, which I want to show you on a different site. So we'll put that link and the original mm-hmm. link in the show notes. Um, and it's basically one of these um, cool seed propulsion things mm. that kind of your arm shown before. So in this case, it's Chinese witch um, hazel. Um, and they just kind of do this like catapulting of their seeds. Um, and the seeds actually... It really looks like it's um, a, a football that's thrown through the air and it twists, oh. like, you know, it's like, because actually it has yeah. somehow the shape of a football and then it's like twisting slightly as it goes through the air and it just gets up to these massive speeds as it like hurtles through the air. So I'm showing your arm now. Um, they've put together this um, video where they just show you, it's, it's basically like the the seed capsule dries out and then at one point it just like hits the pressure point and like pop. Um yeah, but it's really, it's rotating around its axis and stabilizing mm-hmm. its flight. It's pretty cool. Yeah, and I mean, the idea is just that they can, so the it rotates 26,000 times per second and the seed can fly up to 18 meters, which given that it's like kind of, I don't, I don't know what size, I can't see the, the exact size of the seed, but it's like kind of a quite a small little nutty thing. It's, it's pretty impressive. Um, We'll put the link up there. It's just a kind of a nice thing to see. Yeah, it's pretty. Uh, I'm scrambling a little bit for fun stuff. I said last week already, I find uh, the news in my news feeds a little bit um, uh, depressing at the moment. Um, actually, I, I recorded another bit um, about another plant, um, but I think it's not so exciting as a favorite plant, um, but I want to put it here as a fun stuff because there's this this plant, uh, Justitia brandegeanea, um, which is also called the Mexican shrimp plant um, because it looks like um, it has these like flower buds that are sort of hanging off the plant and they look like shrimp 
or to Germans, um, they call it the false hop uh, because Germans don't know shrimp. They just know hop from, from beer making and they call it like the, it's a, the wrong kind of hop. And I just found it funny to see like these two common names be so very different. Yeah. Um, because Also, like when you said Mexican shrimp plant, like... I thought it could go somewhere really racist for a second there. Like it was just like, <laughs> no, it's a shrimp. But imagine the shrimp is Mexican. Like no, I thought no, it was going to take, but it grows Mexico. in Mexico it and it, lo- in it looks exactly like a shrimp. Um, yeah, this is really quite pretty. Yeah, like a um, little tail. I think they're also quite uh, often used as ornamental plants. It's also why I found it there in the botanical garden. Um, Did you an, taste it to see if it tasted like shrimp? I actually I didn't think of it, and also I don't know if I would have dared to do that. You should have just licked it, all right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I have no. <laughs> um, the the Wikipedia article is like very like very short. Or, mm. Like at one point, it just says it, but on the pest and disease, it just says nematodes. Like not not even a full stop <laughs> or a bullet point or anything. <laughs> it just says nematodes. Yeah, <laughs> not even. Yeah, okay. I like I like the idea that it's um Brander what Brander G A N A because it's named after somebody called Mister Brander G. So it's like Brenda G. Anna. Yeah, Brenda G. Anna. Brenda G. Anna. Yeah. Well done. It's it's a fun looking plant. It's like a little shrub that growing very tall. Um, yeah, and Germans don't know shrimp, so that's why we call it hops. Well done. Um, I couldn't find any cat facts to end the show. I mean, I saw like one really ridiculous cat fact, which was. <laughs> Should the, I Google again cat facts? Which no, is that Nicole Kidman likes to take her cats in backpacks out on hikes with her <laughs> and then like some like RSPCA or something was responding like mm, cats don't really like going in backpacks maybe don't do that it's just inane on every level so <laughs> I'm sorry that's what I'm bringing to the table I want to have one of these cat backpacks yeah, these backpacks that have like this astronaut do- astronaut dome yeah. well that's the thing the person's like well actually that's not good for the cats because sometimes cats like to hide and not be seen when they're scared so if it can look out into the world it might actually cause it more stress uh. I yeah, <laughs> I think having a cat maybe puts dogs them are in stressed when you take them on leashes. Have you ever thought of that? Maybe that's stressful to dogs. <laughs> yeah, maybe dogs a, like to hide too. Having a cat puts them in an environment that's so far away from like what they naturally, whatever that means, would be <laughs> used to, and that stresses them when the doorbell rings. So. Th- like they can they can deal with some backpacking. I think as long as it can like have a little like hole to like put its paw out and slash people in the face if they come too close <laughs> to it then like it should be happy like that should be the concession yeah. we make to our backpack cats yeah yeah but my I- cat always loves going like if i have a backpack on the floor not my cat my old cat um or like a suitcase they love they love that shit so from all i can tell from cats they want to travel they desire travel yeah i have these ikea bags and uh one of my cats always jumps into it as soon as it sees one and, and then i can carry him around in the ikea bag <laughs> and i'm often very tempted to just Go, go outside with him with with uh, being in the bag and just carrying him around. And we've also seen that video from Ikea. Cats love Ikea. Like yeah. thousands of cats once visited <laughs> Ikea. They love that shit. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've seen the making of of that video and like there's so many cats <laughs> that ex- escaped. And they're trying to find them and it's like, like they can hear <laughs> sounds behind the pipes and they're like, ah, shit. <laughs> yeah. Just what we never expected would happen. One of the cats they, is gone. Yeah, they tried to lock off the area so the cats couldn't escape. And obviously, they immediately, the cats were like, oh, I could get out of here. <laughs> 
Cats is smarter than you. <laughs> Take home message. All right. Um, I think it's time to end the show today. Yes. Um, follow us on all of the social media. On um, Instagram and Facebook, we're at Plants and Pipettes. Uh, on Twitter, we are at Plants Pipettes. Our original blog, which features Yoram's beautiful drawings, is www.plantsandpipettes.com. And amazing com. words by Tegan. And Very sometimes cool. by Yoram. And really good editing by Tegan. And like, whenever you read something that has my name on it, it's only good because Tegan edited it. Don't say that. You're trying to get a job in science communication, you idiot. This will be published after my interview. <laughs> cut that. Cut that. <laughs> No, obviously, like um, she I can actually do all the drawings, all of the weapons. <laughs> she can, she can only edit what's already good. Like you can't edit rubbish to make it good. That's true. You can only shine shit so what something. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the <sighs> blog is cool. Come and see the blog, um, and then f- uh, review us on iTunes. Um, We're always interested in hearing your comments. If you have some fun cat facts, please tell us because yep. it's, it's getting dry out there, guys. Yeah, we have a comment section below on the website, so you can comment under this episode you can tweet at us you can message us on insta wherever you find us you can message us um and yeah the opening and closing music is caravana by philip gross and goodbye bye